and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, What I want to talk to you about this morning actually is uh, Jesus as the priest. And so what we're going to talk about as we get into the book of Hebrews here is we're transitioning from... Remember, this is a a letter that's written to Jewish Christians in the first century before 70 AD, before the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. And so these are people who are well acquainted with the modes of worship that Judaism practiced. Sacrifices, offerings, visiting the temple, all those things were necessary for worship and for justification to be made right with God. And they've left those old ways of worship, seeing them fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. The old sacrificial system pointed forward to the Messiah who would give his life once and for all for the cost of sin. So they've left that old sacrificial system and now they worship Jesus through offering their lives to to God through Jesus Christ and understanding that the the sacrifice has been taken care of once and for all. And so, but within the Old Testament, there was an entire group of people, the priesthood, that was uh, instituted by God through Moses and Aaron. And so the, Le- the Levites, the tribe of the Levites, uh, the Levitical priesthood was instituted in, in Exodus and, and Numbers, and there's a lot of detail given to it in those books. But everything that they did was done in order to demonstrate that God was with the people, that the people could be with God, and that there was a process of being made right in order for that to happen, okay? And so that's what they did. But one of the things that you'll hear people say is, is you know, is God good? Is God powerful? And, and here's a quote from a, a couple of people that are atheists. It says, if God is willing to prevent evil, but not able, then he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. If God is able to prevent evil, but not willing, then he's a monster. And then he also says, since ancient times, the philosopher's secret has always been this. We know that God does not exist, or at least, if he does, he's utterly indifferent to our individual affairs. Have any of you ever felt that way? Right? See, there's, there's intellectual atheism, which is what this is expressing. Martin Luther would go on and say that the worst form of atheism is actually practical atheism. For somebody to claim to be a follower of God, uh, but live in a manner that, that shows that they didn't think was, that God was powerful enough for them. Uh, that Jesus' death on the cross was not enough to save them from sin, and so there was work that they had to do to be saved. Right? That was what Luther really went after, was all of the indulgences and things that people did in order to become saved rather than trusting in Jesus. That would be practical atheism. Or, or believing that God exists, but he's not present, he's not caring, he's not involved in your life. You could live that way as a, somebody that claims to be a Christian. You could live as though you really didn't believe he was involved in your day-to-day life. But we know from the book of Hebrews, from last chapter, we saw that therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now that word confession, you read it in the English and it doesn't sound like much, but in the Greek, uh, what's being conveyed there is agreement with divine revelation 
revelation, agreement with what God has shown us to be true and right. And so what do we know in our confession as followers of Jesus Christ? We believe that God became human, that God left the heavens and took on the the frailty, the brokenness of humanity and was subject to those things, yet was without sin. And because God did this in the person of Jesus and he was without sin, he is able then to go to a cross and offer up his own life as a sacrifice to wash away sin and to justify it, to satisfy the requirements of the law and make sinners right. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ has been freed from the consequences of sin and through Jesus' resurrection from the dead three days later, you've been given new life. And then Jesus appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days and before he ascended into heaven, reascended into heaven, he then commissioned his church to share this good news. That is the divine revelation that we Christians must hold fast to. That God became human, he took away our sin on the cross, he washed it away, he made us right, he rose from the dead to give us new life, he appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days, he now sits at the right hand of the Father in power and has commissioned us, his followers, to be filled by his Holy Spirit, live in line with the word of God that he's revealed to us, and share the message of the gospel with the world around us. That is what we are to hold fast to and not back away from. We don't want to go back to old ways of legal believing that we have to work to be right with God and instead of trusting in the cross, trust in ourselves. We don't want to fall into patterns of belief like that. So we hold fast to our confession. For we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And so we know that we have someone mediating between us and God, working for our righteousness and our salvation. His name is Jesus. He acts as the high priest. He is divine and human. He was tempted and sinless. He has a vicarious victory. In other words, he won something that we get to partake in right? His victory is passed on to us. The victory that he won over sin and death is then transferred and given to us by his grace. And so we have this bold freedom. We receive mercy and grace and endless relationship with God. And so is God undistant or is God distant and uncaring? Is he impotent or malevolent? The obvious answers to these things in the person of Jesus is no. God is very present. He is very real. He has given us his own son to see him through, to understand him by. He walked on this earth just as we do. He gave his life for the washing away of our sins so that we could be made right. He defeated sin and death. God is not far off or distant. He cares about us individually so much that he would step into our history and prove it. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, is what does a priest do, and how has Jesus accomplished this for us? Let me pray with you, and then we'll, we'll begin chapter 5. Heavenly Father, this morning, I, I pray that you would show each and every one of us the joy that it is to trust in your Son, Jesus. Uh, For those of us who have already made a decision to believe that he has saved us from our sin and that he has given us new life through his resurrection, that you would remind us of this this morning, how blessed we are to be able to trust in your son, Jesus. For those here this morning that have not trusted him, God, will you teach them to turn away from the idea that they're self-sufficient? 
When you teach them to turn away from uh, the things in life that they turn to to numb themselves from the pain that's deep down inside of them because of their own sin and because of the sin of others. Will you open up their hearts to see their need and then, God, will your spirit work in their lives to, to, to guide them to trust that you are good, that you are loving, that you have done everything necessary for them to receive wholeness and to be made new creations in your son Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done and who you are. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So he's going to do, the first thing we see here in, in this chapter is he's going to describe what a priest did in the Old Testament. So he says, for every high priest is taken from among men and is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the, the priesthood in the Old Testament, there were lots and lots of priests, but there was one that was marked out as the high priest. And the high priest had the very specific job of on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur in the Jew Jewish calendar, he would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant as an offering for the sins of the entire nation. There were individual offerings. If, if you and I practiced Old Testament Judaism, we would go to the temple and we would do our own offerings of sacrifices for our sins. And we would do that through a priest. The high priest had a unique office of also offering once for all of the people once a year a sacrifice for the entire nation. And so that's what he's talking about here in the, the high priest. He would offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. So the other thing that the priests would do before they entered into the temple on a daily basis, and especially on the, like a day of Yom Kippur, they, the, the high priest would go through a process of cleansing himself from sins through an offering and a sacrifice that he was giving for himself. And then he would offer for all of the people. It says, no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. Again, go back to the Old Testament, Moses and Aaron and the priesthood instituted by God through Aaron. So what do we learn about the qualifications and actions of the priesthood? The priests are human, just like the rest of us. Jesus was human, just like the rest of us. Uh, priests are appointed to a unique office of providing necessary worship and atonement for the people through gifts or offering given as acts that demonstrate deep respect or love for God. And that's, in the Old Testament, there were, they were more than just animal sacrifices. People would give grain or incense, and they would burn that on the altar. And that was done not as, a, not as an act of washing away sin, but as an act of saying, God, we honor you, we love you. It's a, it's a joy to be one of your people. We recognize the unique position that you have in our life. And so we're going to offer you, they called it the first fruits, the very best of what they had. They would give to God first as saying, you are the supplier of everything we recognize recognize that. We recognize that we need you. We want you. We honor you. Your goodness is, is all that we could ever hope for. And so these acts were done in that way. 
sacrifices made for sins. Those were done to wash away sin, the process of expiation, washing away sin, and to bring justice to wrongdoing or propitiation. And both of those things are required for justification. The sin has to be expiated or washed away, paid for, but there also has to be something that then brings about what is right in terms of the law. There's a debt that's due and it has to be paid. So that's what the priesthood would do with these offerings. An animal would give its life, the blood was shed for the sin of the individual or the the sin of the nation, and it would wash away the sin, um, and it would also cause the people to be right in God's eyes. That's what atonement is. It's to be at one with God again, and that only can happen when sin is completely dealt with. So those things were necessary to deal with sin. They would offer compassion and grace to unknowing and to the unknowing and deceived because they experienced the frailty of being a human being. This is something that the priest would do is they understood what it was to be human. Like the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. We're going to see that Jesus is very different in this way. And then we also see uh, that the office is not given by men but by God. This is something that God has instituted in order to point forward to something else. And this is what we understand about the Old Testament, is that reading it is valuable, reading it is good. There are many lessons to learn about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, but we shouldn't go back and place ourselves under Old Testament law, because the point of the law was to, point, was to move forward towards our need of a Savior. It pointed forward to Christ. It was a teacher, a tutor, to guide us to our need of a Savior, and Christ has already accomplished everything. So we see here that Jesus, in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God, who said to him, you are my son, Today I have become your father. That's Psalm 2 7. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. The entire point of it is what will the coming king be like? Who is he and what, what will he be like and what will he do? One of the things we learn is that he will be a son of God the Father, the Son of God the Father. Uh, also, it says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And we learn about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. But he's a priest forever. That's, that's a unique thing about Jesus. Uh, the priests of the Old Testament, they have passed away, they have gone on, they've died, and they were not then instituted back into priesthood. Jesus is a priest forever. And here's an important distinction, priest and prophet. What a priest does is a priest represents the people to God. He would, he would act on behalf of the people to communicate and commune with God, right? A prophet, he was given a message by God to share with the people. We know that Jesus is actually the ultimate expression of both of those. He is the, the high priest, the, the one who the, the high priesthood pointed forward to. He is the one that all the prophets pointed forward to, and he is also the king of kings. He's the ultimate expression of a priest, a prophet, and a king. But what about this guy, Melchizedek? What can we learn about him? Uh, Psalm 2 demonstrates that Jesus is a, a king in the line of David. Psalm 110 demonstrates that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. So if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 14, you'd read a story about Abraham and his uh, cousin Lot is taken captive. Lot and all of his household is taken captive. And Abraham goes and he rescues them from seven kings. There's a big battle that takes place and Abraham's men rescue Lot and all of his people. And then this guy, Melchizedek shows up 
and he shows up with bread and wine as his mode of worshiping God, a very unique thing that he did. He shows up with bread and wine in order to worship God. His name means the king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem, um, which is uh, meaning peace or fulfillment. So he's the king of righteousness and, and the prince of peace. Does this sound like someone to you? Uh, Jerusalem, later on, becomes, Salem becomes Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's believed where Melchizedek came from. Um, and he is a priest to the Most High God. Many theologians believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. That before Christ took on flesh, he showed up in human history in multiple places, this being one of them after Abraham rescues his people. And it's an interesting point in time because Abraham is offered by the city of Sodom wealth and position. And Abraham turns it down. And instead of turning to the world for wealth and position, he then he instead gives himself to the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he offers him worship instead. It's, it's a really interesting point that he shows up at. In Abraham's life, in the life of God's people, would they find their wealth and their position in the ways of the world, or would they find their wealth and their position in the king of righteousness and the king of peace? Where do you go? But here's the point. Jesus is like the priest from the line of Aaron in what he does and who appoints him, yet he is completely unlike them in who he is and what he's able to accomplish. And so here's what Jesus accomplished in his earthly life. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So these are some pretty interesting verses here that are describing Jesus' earthly life. If you were to go into the Greek, it actually is his life in the flesh. Uh, his life as a human being. This is what Jesus did. He offered prayers and appeals, loud cries, tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or his awe of the Father, his dependence upon the Father. Here's an interesting thing, is that Jesus cried out for salvation from death, and yet he died. But he lives forevermore. So there's something going on here with Jesus. And so we see that Jesus' ministry, the agony of Christ, is seen in the, in the death of Lazarus. Lazarus. If you get to John chapter 11, one of Jesus' very good friends, Lazarus, dies. And he goes to where Lazarus has died and been buried. And what do we hear at the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. He cries at the death of his friend. He cries at the, at the, at the pain of his friends because their brother has died. Their friend has died. And here's God, eternal, in human flesh. And when he sees death, it moves him to tears, just like it does us. And that's because the image of God has been instilled into us. And, and within us is, is, is a desire to not be a part of death. And God, it's not his design that we would die. But because of sin, it exists. And so Jesus weeps at his friend's death. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's so overcome with agony that, that he, he sweats blood. He prays to the Father. What's he saying to all of his disciples? He's saying, stay awake with me and pray. Stay awake with me and pray. They're all falling asleep. And so what's he doing in prayer? What's prayer? 
It's communion with God. And so he goes to commune with God and his conversation with the Father as he goes to commune with him is he says, take this cup from me. The cup of suffering, the cup of death, the cup of agony, the broken body that he would endure, the pain that he would endure. But ultimately, what he endured was was the breaking of his relationship with the Father as he became sin on our behalf. This is the greatest agony that the Godhead has ever known, is the brokenness of the relationship between the Father and the Son as the Son becomes sin for us. We see his false trials, the betrayal of his friends, his scourging, and his crucifixion. His prayers were for the defeat of death, resolution to do the Father's will, and the forgiveness of sinful, ignorant men, and the anguish of his broken body and heart. We see that God heard his prayers because of his dependence and reverence for the Father. And yet he died. He prayed... He sought the Father's will, and yet he suffered. And that is because it was the Father's plan. It was Godhead's plan. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's plan that they would join us in our suffering. Though though he owed us nothing, he joined us in our suffering. Why? Why? Why do you join someone in their suffering? Why do, you, why do you go to the hospital and visit somebody that you love when they're hurting? Why do you show up in the house of somebody that's, that's dealing with anxiety and, and work with them, sit with them, bless them? Why do you do it? Because you love them. And so he joins us in our frailty. He joins us in our temptation. He joins us in our pain. He joins us in the death of his friend. The tears of her brother. He he joins us in all of these things because he loves us. And it's not just stories on the pages of Scripture that Christ joins us, it's your life, it's my life that he joins us in. It's our day-to-day affairs. It's our anguish. It's our pain. He joins us in all of these things and he overcomes them and he gives them meaning and he teaches us. He guides us to trust him and he guides us to go to the Father uh, for care and and substance to be sustained. He leads us in this way. He saves us. And this is something unique to Christianity that the Son of God learned obedience through what he suffered and was perfected. Many people have taken these phrases, false views and false religions, have taken these phrases uh, to, to view that Jesus' deity was something he acquired rather than something inherent to his eternal person. These views are heresy and antithetical to the gospel. I'll, I'll share with you a little bit why. Why are these views heresy and antithetical to the gospel? That Jesus was just another human like us, and then through his actions he earned deity. Rather than, he was God of all history who joined us in our humanity. They're antithetical to the gospel because what, what, what teaching that Jesus earned his deity teaches us is that we can earn it too. It teaches us that in order to be saved, we must do what Christ did in order to reach fulfillment. 
rather than God has given fulfillment. Not we worked for it, but it was graced, it was given to us. And this is where any view that says Jesus was a man and then he earned his deity fails the gospel because it teaches you and I to work for our salvation rather than to work it out as a gift that's been given to us. And so the Christian never leaves his confession of faith, the divine revelation that God joined us in humanity, not a human became God. Rather, what's being highlighted are the trials Jesus faced in his human existence and how he learned to obey his Father in ways previously unknown to the Godhead. That is an interesting thing, that he learned obedience and he was perfected. What's that teaching us? That the all-knowing God had an experience he had not had before in being human. And he didn't have to. But because he cared about you and me, he chose to. He chose to be tempted. He chose to take on the limitations of humanity. He chose to bleed and die because it was necessary for our salvation. That was the cost of eternal salvation and the love of God is in view. And so the son of God, the heir of David, the priestly line of Melchizedek has accomplished an everlasting salvation that no other man, king, or priest could. The resume of the high priestly Jesus proves his title is one that no other man owns. He is the savior. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed king. He is God. You cannot say that about any other human being. There is no other human being who is God. There is no other human being who is Messiah. There is no other human being who is Lord and worthy to be followed. There is no other human who has ever lived that was capable of our salvation. Jesus not only was capable of our salvation, he did accomplish it through his own death, burial, and resurrection. And see, for any relationship to work, think about your human relationships. For any human relationship to work, there has to be a giving from both parties, right? You can't enter into your relationship with your spouse and say, you give all the time. You don't want your spouse to enter a relationship with you and say, give all the time, right? There's always, there's always a sacrifice on both halves in order for a relationship to work. And so here's a quote from Tim Keller in The Reason for God. He says, in the most radical way, God has adjusted to us in his incarnation and atonement. In Jesus Christ, he became a limited human being, vulnerable to suffering and death. On the cross, he, he submitted to our condition as sinners and died in our place to forgive us. That should be astonishing, that God himself on a cross submitted to our condition as sinners. The perfect one became sin. The righteous one became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. It's like, I know you're an alcoholic. I know, 
I know you're addicted to pornography. I know you love money more than you love people. You're greedy. I know, I, I know you lust all the time. I know you take advantage of other people rather than bless them. I know you reject the ways of God and choose your own ways instead. And he became those things on the cross for us. What? He became the rebel. He became the sinner. So that all of that cost would be paid by his blood so that we would be freed from that cost. He died in our place and for our sins. In the most profound way, God has said to us in Christ, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I will serve you though it means a sacrifice for me. He has done this for us, and we can and should say the same to God and others. As Paul writes, the love of Christ constrains us. This is again why, if you believe that Jesus was a man and he became a God, that it fails the gospel. Any, any salvation of works is not salvation. Anything that depends upon your ability to save yourself is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches over and over and over again that the way for us to be right with God is the death of another on our behalf. And Christ is the other on our behalf in a way that no one else could. And so once you realize how Jesus changed for you and gave himself for you, you aren't afraid of giving up your freedom and therefore finding freedom in him. This is what the Christian does. We stop saying, my way, and we start saying, I take up my cross and I daily offer myself to the leading of the one who is worthy to be followed because he loved me and he gave himself up for me. And so we see that God is both willing and able to prevent and destroy evil. He has done so through the penmanship of his word, by joining us in our humanity, and by giving his own life for the cost of redemption, and by exiting the grave alive forevermore. Scriptures talk about general and specific or, or uh, special revelation. General revelation is if you can look at Job's peak and think there's no God, that's pretty unique. Like most people look at creation, less than 10% don't do this, look at creation and say, there's no God. Most people look around and go, there's a, there's a creator, there's a maker, there's somebody outside of this that is powerful beyond our belief. But what special revelation does, the penmanship of God's word, is he has, through his inspiration of individual people throughout human history, caused the story of salvation to be written down for us and preserved for us so that we could know him, so that we could know Jesus. And then the ultimate special revelation of God is Jesus Christ walking among us, right? There are eyewitnesses who wrote down, this is what we did when we were with Jesus. This is what he said when we were with Jesus. This is what happened in 30 AD when he went to Jerusalem and was accused falsely, betrayed by one of his better friends, put before Pontius Pilate, and crucified. And then three days later, we couldn't believe it when it first happened either, but he got up from the dead. 
proving himself to be exactly who he said he was. In fact, we didn't remember it in the moment, but later on we remembered the predictions that he gave of his death and resurrection. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God to us. He gave his own life for the cost of redemption, and he exited the grave alive forevermore. He is the great high priest who can cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Not only does God exist, he does so in the most personal and caring ways possible. He has experienced loss, temptation, pain, sorrow, and death as a human being. He became sin for us. And now we know that Christ is ever-present, he's ever-caring, he's always loving, and he's never-failing. He understands, he blesses, and empowers all who believe upon his name as Messiah, Savior, Lord, and God. And so I want you to close with these questions. Will you look upon Jesus today? Will you look at him? Like, honestly, look at him. And understand his love for you. Feel it. Someone willing to enter the darkest hour of your life, the darkest times of what it is to be a human, to take away your sin, to take away your pain, to offer you life everlasting, to give you hope and meaning and purpose, to be with you all the time through the presence of His Holy Spirit within you. Will you look at Jesus today? And then what is He calling you to lay down and trust Him with? What do you keep turning to instead of him? Your own abilities and performance, your own intelligence. Maybe you've come to the conclusion like most people that you're not that bright and you you turn to something that numbs you. You don't have all the answers and so it hurts to not have all the answers and so I'm going to turn to something else. You know? use alcohol or I'm going to use drugs or I'm going to use pornography or I'm going to use people. It's all about how much money I can get. It's all about how many possessions I can have. It's all about the number of likes I can get on social media. I need the adoration of people more than I want the love of God. Do you see he's worthy of your trust and love based upon his goodness and self-sacrificial love? Close your eyes and pray with me. Father, your name is above every name. I pray that you would guide me and everyone in this room to honor you that way not just with our lips, but far more importantly with our lives. But right now, God, would you guide each of us to see your son Jesus? Help us to look at him today. Help us to imagine, as Paul says in Colossians, that everything that we have ever seen or touched or ever existed was made by him. That Jesus made me, Jesus made the cells of my body, he made the hairs on my head, he made the mountains outside, he made the oceans, he made the skies, he made the birds, he made, he made everything. He's the all-powerful creator and everything was created for him. 
And as he created all these good things, the good things looked at him and said, we don't want you. And they became broken. And as hard as it is to imagine (laughs) being betrayed by everything that you made in love, you endured that. And though you endured that betrayal, you, you came after us. You joined us in our humanity. You were born as a child. You grew up and you grew in stature and wisdom and you, you amazed people over and over again. You treated those who were taken advantage of in ways that nobody else in society would really even think about doing. You broke down racial barriers. You broke down, you broke down the law. You, you, you took away the weight and guilt of sin. You went to the cross and died in my place. You became sin for me. You became, uh, you became the sin of my anger. You became the sin of my lust. You became the sin of my greed. You became the sin of my laziness. You became the sin of, of all the things that I've done wrong. You became that on the cross so that it would no longer be me. And you rose from the dead to replace the brokenness with wholeness. I've done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. And yet you give to me and everyone in this room a love that is beyond what we can understand. May our hearts see and say what a blessing it is to trust you, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.